Uh, when Pastor Kondo approached me about preaching, he said, we're kind of between um, uh, things and, and you can preach on whatever you want, uh, which is a really dangerous thing to ask somebody, especially when he's not here this morning. So um, I have titled my message, 10 Things I Wish Pastor Kondo Would Do Better. No, <laughs> I'll put that on Facebook later. You can share it and like it. Uh, no, that, that's, that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. Or really, as I prayed and thought about what the Lord may want me to share, uh, he brought a message that is for me. Um, he brought me to study about a, a character in the Bible and, and how he handled difficult things. And it was a message for me. And so you get to listen in this morning as I share a message about myself. I, I have titled the message, The Rebuild. The Rebuild. Um, building stuff is not my forte. I'm terrible, terrible at building anything. I, uh, I, in our house, we go full-on party mode if I get the picture hung correctly and there are no repairs to the drywall. That is a good day in the Flam household. I'm terrible, terrible at building stuff. Um, my son Bennett, a year ago, he turned five in September, the end of September, and uh, he asked me to build him a treehouse for his fifth birthday. And being the good dad that I am, I'm like, yeah, a treehouse for a little boy. That's a great, I will call somebody and we will try to build a treehouse. And, you know, we almost got that treehouse done by the time he turned five. It'll turn six here in a couple of weeks. Treehouse is not quite complete yet. Um, so if any of you would like to come over this afternoon and help me complete a tree house for my kid's birthday last year, uh, that would be truly helpful. Um, I'm really terrible at building stuff. I'm not just bad at building stuff. I'm bad at planning to build stuff. Uh, that same kid, um, when he was born, uh, uh, we brought him home and, uh, and we needed to get some siding and some windows put in, in our house. And so I called Jay Whitman here in our church. I said, Jay, I need some siding, some windows. And I perfectly aligned the siding and windows of our house to coincide with bringing our son home from the hospital. So I thought, you know, hey, if a crying baby doesn't drive my wife back crazy, we could just pound on the walls for two weeks. That would be really genius. I am terrible at building. I'm terrible at planning to build. Well, this morning we're going to look at a, a rebuild that went much better from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a much more effective builder than I am. In fact, uh, we're going to learn this morning how he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. Mind you, it's taken me over a year to build a treehouse. 52 days. But the parallels this morning are really not so much about physical rebuilding. The parallels this morning are what does it look like to rebuild spiritually when it feels like so much around us is falling apart? What does it look like for me to rebuild when my heart's broken, when I'm tired of being tired, when life is hard. Um, Before we jump into the story of Nehemiah, it's important I lay a little bit of of groundwork about what leads up to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, The Israelites were God's chosen people. And as God's chosen people, he had put judges in charge of them for much of their history, but he was really their king. They started, though, want to be like everybody else around them and have their own king. And so God said, sure, you can have your own king. And they selected King Saul. And he did okay for a little bit. But then he went off the rails pretty quickly. And and God said, you're pretty bad at this whole picking a king thing. So I'm going to pick the next one. And he picked King David. 
a man after God's own heart, the shepherd boy. And it was during David's reign as king when the walls of Jerusalem, the walls we're going to study about this morning, were built for the first time. Two and a half miles of walls to protect God's people and protect God's place. And really during David's era was the glory days of the Israelites. The Israel thrived and Jerusalem thrived. And after David, he passed along the kingship to his son, Solomon. And Solomon started really well. Solomon was the wisest man. We know him as that. But uh, eventually, he started to go off the rails. And he started intermarrying and intermingling and following the idols of other gods. Um, he, he collected wives upon wives upon wives. And then he added concubines to the mix. You want to know what concubines are? Pastor Jeff would love to give you that message after this morning. But he added concubines to the mix. And then he started marrying foreign wives. And his heart was taken away by idols. And David said, serve God with an undivided heart, Solomon. And Solomon did the exact opposite. It was after Solomon, the nation of Israel split in two. There was a northern and a southern kingdom. And both of them followed Solomon in intermarrying and intermingling with others and following the idols of the foreign gods around them. And in the southern tribe where Jerusalem was located, they were taken off into exile to Babylon. Babylon was like the Mecca of idol worship. That was like where idol worship was happening the most. And God said, you want idol worship? Off to Babylon you go. And it's in Babylon where we get the story of Daniel and his friends and their unwillingness to bow to the idols. Well, after a while, the Babylonian Empire becomes the Persian Empire. And a few Israelites are allowed to go back to Jerusalem to start over again. And so a first group comes back to Jerusalem and they kind of start life over again in Jerusalem. But very, very quickly, they start intermingling, intermarrying and being taken away by the idols of foreign gods. And it's really important that I I say something here. This whole intermarrying thing has nothing to do with intercultural or interracial marriage. It has everything to do with interfaith marriage. God wanted his people to be solely focused on him. And those who got married, he said, I want you to marry people that are solely focused on following me had nothing to do with interracial but interfaith marriage where they were taken off into following other gods and other idols because of who they were marrying. Well, then a second group of exiles was allowed to come back to Jerusalem and Ezra brought them. And Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. Ezra's kind of like the pastor of the Israelites. Um, He's the one that gives them the commands of God. And so he comes back to Jerusalem and they start rebuilding the temple and things are going well. The temple is starting to be erected and it's becoming God's place once again. But then we see that the walls were broken down, that God's people and God's place were unprotected. Enter Nehemiah. Now, let me ask you, does it ever feel like the meandering ups and downs of the Israelites in your own life? A little two step forward, three steps back. If you're like me, especially these last 18 months of this pandemic, a lot of walls have come down in my life. Uh, The walls of relationships have splintered because of distance or because of political disagreement or because of that thing you said on social media or that thing that they said on social media. Or maybe for you, it's the walls of familiarity. You're You're a student, you're at a new place and you've got new classes and new friends and you're just trying to figure out how to rebuild this new life that you now have away from the familiar. 
Maybe you're a parent and it's the fall and it's that time where you're trying to figure out which kid goes what place when and how do I put this fall schedule together? And just when you got it figured out, it it seems to all change once again. The walls are breaking down. Or maybe it's the walls of what you thought you knew. Not sure who to believe or, or who is right and who's wrong and what you should say and when you should say something. There's so many voices and, and I don't even know what I should know. If you're like me, you're tired, you're confused, you're heartbreaking. And guess what? You're just like Nehemiah. So with that background, let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 1 through 3. If you have a copy of God's word, you can open it there to Nehemiah 1. We'll also have the verses on the screen. Uh, If you don't have a copy of God's word, uh, we'd love to give you one here at Mission Point out at the Welcome Center. But I'm going to read this morning from Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He, he was in a really important position in the Persian Empire. We could maybe akin it to like being the chief of staff to the president of the United States. Uh, earlier this week, I was watching a video clip and 9-11's coming up here in a week. And um, it was that moment when President George W. Bush heard about the second tower being hit and America being under attack. If you remember, he was in a classroom in Florida and he's reading books to little kids and someone walks up to him and delivers this terrible, heartbreaking message. Well, the person to deliver that message was Andrew Carr, the White House chief of staff. And that's kind of who Nehemiah was. You didn't get to the king without going through Nehemiah. He was really important in the Persian empire. And Nehemiah heard this report about Jerusalem from his brothers and decided, I've got to do something about it. He decided he was going to leverage all that power. He was going to put the chips in, bet the farm, go for broke, and use his position to run a building campaign and rebuild the walls. Nehemiah realized that his place was his purpose. His place was his purpose. Nehemiah saw something wrong, and instead of you know, lobbing some criticisms, I can't believe you guys, Israelites, get it together. Instead of sending them a memo, he says, you guys are terrible. Here's the 10 steps you need to take to fix yourselves. He says, no, my place is my purpose and I need to do something about it. The truth is our place is our purpose. Your place is your purpose. If you're a student, the classes you're taking, the dorm you live in, the major you chose right now, that place is your purpose. If you're a mom and dad, and right now you feel more like a taxi service than anything else, that place in your car with your kids, that's your purpose. Uh, If you're taking care of aging parents while you're also helping with the grandkids, those people and that place is your purpose. If you come here to Mission Point right now, this place is your purpose. Sometimes we think if things were different, if I had different kids, different spouse, different jobs, different city, different circumstances, then I might know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Changing your circumstances will not provide clarity of purpose. Because wherever you are right now, 
whatever you're doing right now, whatever you're facing, whatever breaks your heart, that place is your purpose right now. But we see that Nehemiah doesn't immediately go off and start fixing walls. Let's look at Nehemiah 1 verses 4 and see what Nehemiah does first. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We're going to see this morning that Nehemiah mourned, then he prayed, then he moved. In verse four here, we see that Nehemiah wept and mourned for some days. According to the timeline here in Nehemiah, he grieved and prayed for about four to five months before he actually did anything. He mourned and prayed for 150 days and he built the walls in 52 days. Three times as long in mourning and praying than in action. One of my uh, issues in life is I like to move to action really quickly. Something's broken. I want to fix it. And this is displayed most in my marriage. Um, My wife comes and she comes to express that something is broken, needs fixed, comes to express a problem. And I'm in fix it mode like right away. Like, let's go get this thing done and fix it um, so we can have peace once again. And, uh, And in my good husband moments... Sometimes I realize she just wants to express the problem and for me to hear and to empathize and to connect and to communicate and to mourn with her. Nehemiah hears this report and the first thing he does is mourn and pray for 150 days. Have you taken time to mourn? Have you taken time to mourn these last 18 months of the pandemic? They've been really, really hard. Data comparing 2019 to 2021 shows symptoms of anxiety and depression are up as much as 30%. Difficulty sleeping, up. Alcohol use, up. We're more depressed, we're more stressed, we're more anxious. I don't know about you, but my late night snacking is way up. My waistline is way out. It's hard. I was talking to a friend earlier this week about this idea of grieving. And we were talking about our use of social media. And uh, I'll give an example of my use of Facebook. Because I'm old. I use Facebook. And, uh, and how I use it in this idea of grieving. I, I get on my feed, right? And the, the first thing I see is that a friend had a new baby. Like, scroll up. You know, um, my favorite football team, the Iowa Hawkeyes, beat the Indiana Hoosiers yesterday. Yes, love. Yeah, move it on up. Next, there's a bombing in Afghanistan. 120 people die. Sad face, scroll up. Funny meme, ha ha, scroll up. In just a few seconds, I express a range of emotions with my fingertips without truly feeling any of those emotions in my heart. Nehemiah grieved over broken walls for 150 days, and often my grieving is the stroke of a finger. Um, I was really convicted about my lack of mourning while studying this passage. Uh, I'm not a real crier, emotional guy. I'm a little bit more of a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, nose to the grindstone kind of guy, but I was really convicted what I saw here about Nehemiah mourning, and, and I did something I've never done. Uh, I just took out some paper and I just started writing. 
I just started writing all the hard stuff. What are the hard decisions that I've had to make the last 18 months? What are the hard things that I've seen and experienced? What's causing me anxiety and stress? Where have I messed up? And I just started writing and writing and writing. And mourning with God over all the hard things that have gone on. I'd encourage you to think about that. To spend some time in a way that's effective for you. To mourn what has been difficult. Mourning is good when done with God. We see this in the life of the Nehemiah, but we also see it in the life of Jesus. Right? Think about that night before Jesus goes to the cross. He's in the garden of Gethsemane there with his disciples. And he's about to embark on carrying the sins of the world on his shoulders. And we're told in Luke 22 that Jesus, being in anguish, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. A sweating blood is an actual thing called hematidrosis. Hopefully I pronounced that right. And it is caused by great emotional distress, by mourning. Jesus is mourning so much with his father that sweat is literally dripping from his forehead in the form of blood. Jesus gets together with his father and mourns over your sin and mourns over my sin. Just like Nehemiah is mourning over the broken walls of Jerusalem. Mourning precedes moving. Now let's keep reading in Nehemiah and we're, we're going to see now that he mourns and then he prays. We're going to look here in verse 5 at the start of Nehemiah's prayer. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Nehemiah mourned, and then Nehemiah prayed. Praying is something we all know is good. We've done it a few times already this morning. Uh, But for many of us, it doesn't come easy. Um, We don't know how to pray, or we don't feel like we have the time to pray. But think about this. Nehemiah is one of the most powerful men in the known world, and he just gets this really bad news about Jerusalem. And instead of like strategizing and planning and the meeting before the meeting before the meeting, he takes time first to pray. In fact, we see throughout the book of Nehemiah, 11 times he stops and he prays. Martin Luther, who did no small thing in leading the Reformation, once said, work, work from morning until late at night. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Nehemiah shows us the priority of prayer, but he also gives us some guidelines for how to pray. So often my prayers are extremely me focused, right? You know, dear heavenly father, my prayers are more effective when I use a low voice. Dear heavenly father, uh, thank you for this day. And here's all the stuff that I want, right? It's totally focused on me, mine. But we see in Nehemiah a very different way of praying. Uh, I learned long ago this acronym called ACTS for a methodology of prayer, A-C-T-S. And in my 
um, hopes of trying to be as pastorish as I can this morning. I thought an acronym seemed appropriate. So um, we're going to do the acronym that I see reflected here in the book of Nehemiah. A-C-T-S. Acts. The first thing we see in Nehemiah's prayer is adoration. Adoration, or as my kids might say, props. Nehemiah starts by calling God great and awesome. And we love that word, right? Awesome. That was an awesome game. That was an awesome burger. It was awesome. I learned, uh, I learned a couple weeks ago that sick also means awesome. My kids have taught me. So they run around the house saying, that was sick. And I'm like, you got to be really careful in this era of COVID. You're going to be home for 10 days if you keep calling everything sick. Um, but that was awesome. Nehemiah calls a God awesome, and he really is the only one who truly deserves that accolade. Jesus, when teaching his disciples to pray, similarly tells them to start with adoration. He says in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or as we could say, awesome is your name. And here's the thing. God doesn't need a reminder of who he is. He's pretty self-aware. But sometimes we need a reminder of who God is. I love that we started our service today in a song that was all about calling out God who God is. Adoration. Adoration and then confession. Notice after Nehemiah praises God, he goes into a time of confession. He says, I confess the sins of the Israelites, including myself and my father's family. He confesses his disobedience, but he also confesses the collective disobedience of the Israelite family to God's commands. So married folks, in application here tonight, I want you to confess your sins to your spouse and then, you know, confess their sins. to. No, don't do that. It'd be a really bad idea. Um, but I do think in our individualistic culture, we often fail in group confession. We just came out of a series called Body Works, right? And in a real sense, my sin affects all of you and your sin affects all of us as the body of Christ. Yes, we must confess where we individually have failed, but we must also confess where we as the body of Christ have failed. Nehemiah goes on in his prayer of confession and in verse seven, he says, we have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees and laws that you gave your servant Moses. He is truthful and specific in his confession. We often, when we confess, we confess with caveats. There's some caveats to our confession. You know, I, I yell at my kids and I, and I say, oh, I'm sorry I yelled at you, but it was a stressful day, right? Uh, my kids love to use this one. Yeah, I hit him, but he looked at me. He looked at you? We confess with caveats. But Nehemiah just comes out and he calls a spade a spade. He said, God, we messed up. We've been wicked, just terrible. And then he's specific. He said, let me tell you exactly what we've done, God. We've not obeyed you. We've ignored what you have told us to do. He knew confession in prayer came before action, before moving. Augustine put it this way. The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. In verses 8 through 10, Nehemiah reminds God of his promises to care for his people, to bring them out of exile if they obey him. Uh, Now, typically, when we think of Thanksgiving again, it's very focused on who? Us. God, thank you for what you have done for me. And that's a good thing. But here we see reflected in Nehemiah 
that he praises God for God doing what God says God's going to do. It's God, not me, that is the central figure of his thanksgiving. And isn't that better praise? Isn't that a better kind of thanksgiving? Yes, it's good to thank God for our food. It's a good thing. But isn't it even better to thank God that he's been faithful to us over and over and over despite our sin? Faithful just like he said he would be. That's better. Yes, it's, it's great to thank God for a nice day. We should do that. God, thanks for a nice day. That's good. And it is a beautiful day outside, isn't it? But thanking God that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, just like he said he would be, that's better. The Bible has over 3,000 promises of God. He has said he will do a bunch of stuff, and he has done all of it, all of the time, for eternity past. That is sick. That is awesome. I'm terrible at keeping promises. I say I will do something and I don't do it. I say I'll be home at a certain time and I'm not. But God is a promise keeper. He keeps every single one of his promises. And we should thank him for it. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Supplication. I just said a word that sounds like supper and half of you have checked out and already are making your lunch order for this afternoon, but supplication. At the end of Nehemiah's prayer in verse 11, he says this, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This was no small request that Nehemiah was making. Nehemiah was about to take some wine to Artaxerxes and then make a really big request and really smart move with the wine, by the way, Nehemiah. But he was about to take him some wine and then make a really big request. He was going to ask a guy who could just chop off his head with a word if he could take off a couple months from work and if he would give him pretty much unlimited resources in order to go take care of his people in Jerusalem. This was a big ask. And supplication is asking or begging for something that you need. Nehemiah knew he was embarking on something that he absolutely could not do on his own. And that's why he mourned and he prayed for 150 days. And all that mourning and praying came down to this one moment. God, I need your help. I can't do it on my own. What is it that you need? What walls do you need to fix? And are you begging God for his help? Maybe it's a relationship that has been broken. Are you begging God for his wisdom and help? Maybe you feel like God might be calling you to a new ministry opportunity or a new job. Are you begging God for his help? Maybe right now your kids feel like the broken walls that are around you. Are you begging God for his help? When you pray, consider the acronym. Consider what Nehemiah does here. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. As Jeff mentioned, I teach a class, and in classes we give quizzes. So here's your quiz. You're going to repeat with me the acronym. Let's see if you can do it with me together. Okay, ready? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Good job. Well done. 100%. I was going to make you repeat it twice, but you did pretty good good job on the first time. So we see that Nehemiah mourns, 
Nehemiah prays, and then Nehemiah moves. And the next 12 chapters of Nehemiah are probably some of my favorite in the Bible. Uh, This is the playbook for leadership. Nehemiah gathers resources. He gathers people. He delegates. He negotiates. He keeps the people focused and motivated. He protects them. This should be a textbook read for anyone who is entering leadership of people or projects. And under Nehemiah's leadership, the walls are built in record time, 52 days. But make no mistake, the leadership of Nehemiah started with the 150 days of mourning and praying. And that's the message I needed to hear. One of the reasons that I love the book of Nehemiah is we named a couple of our kids after the list you see in chapter three. There's a list of names of people who helped on the wall. And and we named our kids after some of those wall builders because we want them to be about building the kingdom of God together. To go find broken places and broken spaces and together build God's kingdom. They may just be in a list of no-name people in chapter three of Nehemiah, but I want them to be a part of kingdom building nonetheless. And it's one of the things that I love about Mission Point. I love that at this church, we are constantly encouraged to find what breaks God's heart, what breaks our heart, and then go do something about it. I think about some of our mission partners and ministries that people have started because they just saw some broken walls. People don't have access to clean water, design outreach. Not every kid gets sports in our community, Agatas. Kids need homes and families, one such child. Those who have been sex trafficked need shelter, beloved, not forgotten. What breaks your heart? What breaks the heart of God? And what are you going to do about it? It may be just the kid in your class who's bullied or left out. Uh, It may be the elderly person down the street who's scared of COVID and the pandemic and just needs some groceries. It, It may be your kid's teacher who's just tired and needs some assistance and some help. It doesn't have to be something big, but what is breaking your heart? Are you looking for things to break your heart? Are you not just scrolling past? And do those things break God's heart too? And then are you mourning? Are you praying? Are you moving? How do you rebuild life when it feels like it's just pure craziness around you? You mourn, you pray, you move. I want to turn our attention to uh, one more part of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Chapter 13 is the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. And um, frankly, it's kind of a sad one. After all of Nehemiah's success, we don't end on a high note. After all the rebuilding, all the work that had gone into reestablishing Jerusalem, all the mourning and the praying and the moving, the rebuilding of God's place to protect them, had happened. And yet Nehemiah finds out the people living in Jerusalem have begun to abandon God, just like those before them. Remember the demise of God's people earlier because of intermarrying and following the idols of other nations? Well, it starts happening again. Nehemiah thirteen twenty six talks about Solomon. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sent? Among the many nations was there no king like him and God loved him and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led away by sin. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God? 
despite all of his best efforts, Nehemiah could not keep the Israelites from following in the sins of their forefathers. The same sin and idolatry that took them down time and time and time again. And I am the same way. The sin that just so easily entangles, that takes me down time and time and time again. Nehemiah is absolutely about rebuilding walls. And and he was an amazing leader. But Nehemiah could not ultimately fix the Israelites' problem. Because Nehemiah points us to a much greater, much better leader, King Jesus. King Jesus who came to fulfill the law. King Jesus who did every single one of those commands perfectly every time. King Jesus who came to take on my sin and your sin and their sin and to bear it upon the cross. King Jesus who took care of the penalty of sin once for all. Yes, the book of Nehemiah is about broken walls. But chapter 13 points us to the fact that we cannot fix the most broken things in us and around us. The sin that so easily entangles. The Israelites, despite all God had done for them, run quickly back to that sin. And we, without Jesus, will do absolutely the same. But praise be to God, because he King Jesus, once for all, bore the penalty of our sin, and he defeated that enemy of death and sin. Mourn, pray, move, but ultimately put your trust in Jesus, the ultimate rebuilder. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can be here this morning to be with you. God, you are awesome. You're great, you're mighty, you are sovereign. We thank you that you know all and that you are in all. And when we're confused and when we see brokenness in us and around us, that that God, you know what's going on, that you have things in your control. And we can praise you and have confidence in that. We confess that we fail so many times and and we run back to those sins over and over again that so easily entangle us because we're not sure what to do with all this brokenness. And instead of running to you, we run to the idols around us. God, forgive us for that. We thank you, God, that you are a promise-keeping God, that you've done everything you said you're going to do, and you're going to do everything you've said you're going to do in the future. And we can have um, confidence in you, God. We pray that this morning um, you would help us to see broken walls. Help us to see the broken walls that are in us that need fixed. And and Lord, send King Jesus through your spirit to fix those walls. Lord, help us also see the, the walls around us. Lord, whatever place you've put us, wherever we are today, help us to see walls that need fixed, to mourn about those walls, to pray and commune with you over the brokenness we see, and then to follow you into action. God, we pray all these things in the name of our Savior, our King, the one who bore all of our sins on the cross, King Jesus. In his name, amen.